Ja bym moment, że Balaram się uśmiechał, to, to tłumaczy, spójrz proszę. Maharaj mówił, że Krishna zaczął rozważać, czy jest pijany, jak często bywa. Krishna started, uh, you know, wondering if uh, Balaram was uh, intoxicated, as if, you know, if he tends to be. Sukadeva Goswami started wondering. Not Krishna. Krishna was in the coils of Kaliya. Krishna znajdował się w objęciach Kaliyi. Sukadeva Goswami. Lila was unfolding before Sukadeva Goswami's heart. And Balaram was smiling and he was questioning. Tak czy inaczej bym się spytał w tym momencie, jak mógł się zastanawiać w ten sposób, bo Balaram miał sobie dzisiaj znać. How could he be wondering like this since he was just a little uh, kid? He was 10 years old. Znaczy, że w tym wieku chodzi czasami pijany, nie? Oh, I'm was 10 years old, and so does it mean that when Balaram was young, he was in, you know, getting intoxicated at, at a, such a young age. Boys will be boys. <laughs> <laughs> of course, just like Krishna is, is mature for his age, so Balaram is also mature for his age. So basically, whatever age he is, you have to add, multiply that by like at least 50%. So if Krishna is 10, he's, he has the, the inside and maturity of, of a 15-year-old. During the Gopasmi uh, ceremony, when the Gopas first went out with the uh, with cows, the Gopasmi's now they become cowherders and graduated from calf herding. Then, um, of course, as we were briefly explaining mentioned last night that this is a, a very strong period of conflict, if you will, between Vatsali Rasa and, and, and Sakya Rasa. And um, at the same time, while they go into the forest, Sridham Saka takes the uh, opportunity to invite Krishna to his home. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, the strong desire of his mother. Mm-hmm. So, while they're escaping from uh, Yashoda's Vatsalya Bhav and free at the same time, she had to just want to go <coughs> in my house all the way to Vishwanapur. Uh, we're free now, we can go over wherever we like. And, you know, my mother wants to see it, something like that. So they take the opportunity to go. I, I only mention it because in order to get um, Balaram's approval, 
he suggests that there will be some, some malu at the other end. <laughs> that uh, a special uh, drink will be available. So he, he, he's already at this age, he has a pension for that, apparently. And of course, he really gives his approval. And, and if they go to Rishabhanapur on the first day of, uh, of Calvary, I won't tell the rest of it, but of course, that's, he meets Radha there, of course, as well. Um, so, yes, uh, uh, Balaram is, uh, is, is, is uh, a habit. Uh, habits formed in youth are difficult to overcome. <laughs> what else? Yes. You said about the Gyan. 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 That this uh, theoretical knowledge. And uh, we must uh, apply, we, we must go to the uh, Vidyan. Vidyan is uh, understanding. So uh, I, I just think about that. And uh, it's only just pray to Lord and think about, for example, our us. And it is enough to get this this understanding, this vegan position, or we should add it something else, or could you uh, just say something about this thinking process? So, uh, because uh, for example, for somebody, they just oh Krishna, I holding, I am holding. So this is uh, right process, or we should just add it something to this thinking. How to resolve, you know, from this theoretical to this understanding? Because uh, understanding, we know what, how we should uh, uh, make a right choice, right, right choice. Uh, and so, could you say something? About well, as far as I understand your query, I'll try to reply. Um, and I think that it is sufficient just to pray to Krishna. But it's not so easy just to pray to Krishna. One time, for example, I was giving a class and it was reasonably philosophical and had to pay attention to it. And uh, after the class, one fellow said, uh, Marsha, whatever happens, just chant, you know, be happy. Why do we have to, like, trouble ourselves with all of this? And I said, yeah, I was wondering the same thing. Why don't you just chant and be happy? <laughs> Is that what you do? The reason that you don't do that is perhaps you don't have enough knowledge to fortify and support your shraddha such that it catapults you or pushes you, drives you into the kind of practice, uh, for example, in chanting that, that fosters remembrance, meditation, and so on and so forth. So, yes, it's sufficient just to pray to Krishna. Um, and some may have the samskar for that, um, but it's probably um, a result of having um, a lot of sambandhagyana in the previous life. Sambandhagyana means the knowledge um, relative to bhakti, so knowledge about the nature of Krishna, his qualities, his leelas, uh, his form, the nature of his abode, and all the nature of the jiva 
Jiva's relationship with, uh, with Maya Shakti, Maya Shakti's relationship with, uh, with, uh, with Bhagwan and so forth. All this uh, kind of knowledge that underlies bhakti. Dhyan as a separate path, which we often refer to, is uh, speaking more about the knowledge of the oneness between Atma and Brahman. So there is a oneness between Atma and Brahman that, um, that some persons focus on exclusively. We acknowledge that there's a oneness, but we also acknowledge that there's a difference, and this opens up a whole um, other um, and higher, further prospect um, in transcendence, right? So uh, while we sometimes argue for the efficacy, the power, the virtue of bhakti over jnana, we're referring to the path of bhakti as opposed to the path of jnana. And while we emphasize the power and the virtues of bhakti and devotion, we should understand that that includes within it the cultivation of the knowledge of Krishna. Because if you don't have theoretical knowledge of Krishna, it's difficult to just pray to Krishna. Right? So, in the more theoretical knowledge you have of Krishna, uh, arguably, the more you, you will be equipped uh, um, and assisted, aided in your, uh, your practice. The knowledge is maybe, maybe theoretical, some of the gyan at some point, but another, at another point it becomes realized. So, how does that ha- how does that happen? The, the knowledge that we gather through our through the exercise of our intellect that's called gyan yoga, gyan yoga, I should say, the sacrifice of knowledge. At the end, for example, at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, what does Krishna say? Do you know? What does Krishna say at the end of the Bhagavad Gita? After that. Those who are reading this conversation, they worship by, by their own intelligence. That's right. Those who uh, study this uh, sacred conversation between myself and Arjun, they look at it from all different angles, they worship me by Gyan Yogya. Mm-hmm. So, this is the, the, the Yogya of sacrifice in the context of Bhakti. This is how we use our intelligence spiritually. So, we should be careful not to avoid using our intelligence in Krishna's service in the name of just just praying to Him. Hmm? If our <laughs> if, uh, if our intelligence is elsewhere and then we, we, we pray to Him, then we probably need some scriptural knowledge to harness and capture our our active intellect. Um, so um, yes, there's a place just for praying, but. Um, those who have that, uh, you know, uh, driven just by ruchi, need any shastra yukti, anything like this, for their, to, to, to propel, to, uh, to assist them in, in their practice, that's very good. But, but it's to be honest, they have that from a previous life. Maybe, let's give an example. Gorkashor Das Bhagavad Maharaj was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. Hmm? It said he carried with him Prem Bhakti Chandrika of Narutam Thakur. I don't know how he couldn't read it, but he carried it with him wherever he went. So his disciple Bhakti Siddhanta was a, was a scholar comparatively, so he was very 
learned how to read and write much more. Um, but when one of the missionaries uh, was of, of Gaudi and was sent to uh, England, came back, and had some doubts, I guess at some point, um, un un understandably, meeting with Western thought uh, firsthand, uh, questions were raised that he hadn't heard for, and maybe didn't have an answer that satisfied himself. Mm -hmm. That he couldn't give as satisfactory of an answer as maybe he would have liked to. Um, whatever the veracity of that history is, it's a story anyway. Um, and um, as a result of it, as the story goes, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi responded that, oh, with just a particle of dust from the lotus feet of Gaur Kishore Das Babaji Mars, there's enough knowledge to drown the whole world. <laughs> so, um, He's the kind of person who just prayed to Krishna. So if you can just pray to Krishna, we'll pray to you. We'll pray for your, for your company. But most devotees can't just pray to Krishna. They need some help to get to that position. And, and um, so the discourse of sadhus and scripture and so forth are um, there to help us in that regard. Now, we have to be careful. If we have a strong intellectual appetite, now, some have more more voracious intellect in terms of its appetite than others, so it wants to be satisfied and it needs to read more books and this book and that book, and it's um, it's uh, it, it has it has to be put in its place hmm? um, by those who were, were troubled in that in that way. Hmm? It has to be uh, has to be turned off. And, uh, make sure there's sufficient chanting and uh, scrubbing them, mopping them, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, active uh, service. So, uh, as I often say, you know, we want to lose our heads, soften our hearts. So, we have to see that using our head is not hardening the heart. Because we can't go there by intellect. It's just not a suitable vehicle. Reason, intellect is part of this world. It's the upper rim of the world, obviously, being above the, the sense objects of the senses, above the senses of the mind, above the mind is the intellect. Mind may say, the senses may say, this feels good, and but the intellect may say, yes, but it's not good for you. Oh, okay, so, so intellect, as I said the other day, is meant to separate us from animality. It's what makes us human, they say. We have rational faculty, humans are reasonable animals, rational animals, but only if they're used their reasoning to rise above animality, and that means taming the mind, taming the senses, reeling them in, and so forth and so on, um, rather than um, being um, 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 how you say, um, having your intellect captured by the mind intelligence, and making it subservient to them, and your intellect work only find ways to satisfy the senses. Then again, you just become a big animal. So, um, intellect is kind of, a, as the Gita says, what's that verse, maybe? Is it the fifth chapter at the end? He says, and then there are the senses, sense objects above the senses, and then above that is the mind, and the intellect, and then there is he, the Atma himself. So, um, that is the categorical then shift from the material hierarchy from 
from sense objects to senses to mind to intellect to a different category, atma, which is of a, of a spiritual nature. So because it is such, intellect cannot sh- shed light on it. Intellect can't capture it, can't grab it. Because hmm? it's inferior intellect to, to the self. So it's not sufficient of a, 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 of a, a luminary, of, a, of, of, of um, shedding, insufficient in, in its power to illumine, hmm? um, to uh, undo itself, uh, shed light, let's say, on the full prospects of the self. For that, we need some descending um, wisdom, knowledge. So, um, so, as we sometimes say, chanting is a trans. It's not irrational, but it's not a not a rational exercise. It's a it's a transrational exercise when it picks up where reason uh, leaves leaves off. Um, so, we need to school the intellect, so to speak. The scripture invites us: bring your intellect. It's big appetite here, and. Um, the Bhagavatam makes it makes a challenge to the to the intellect. Bring it, bring it, and we will devour you. And so, you know, those who think they've understood the scripture and put it away, they are the biggest fools. Actually, they have a but a superficial understanding of the depths of what lies therein. In, in the text of the Bhagavad, uh, for example. So, uh, we need to capture our intellect, and uh, scripture is there to help us. The Gita again says, study, by studying this conversation, one worships me by, by Gyan Yagya. Hmm? And, uh, and, uh, and there you find all so much Sambandha Gyan for, for Bhakti. So it's, we say sometimes Shastriya Shraddha, our faith is the vehicle for going there, and um, faith is derived from from revelation. If you want a perfect way of knowing, as I often say, you need a perfect method. And reason is not a perfect method for arriving at um, comprehensive, the end of knowledge, perfect knowledge. The reason that we pursue perfect knowledge is in order to, to be perfectly informed in terms of our actions that we might be perfectly happy. I mean, that's what we're all pursuing. Hmm? Knowledge, then in a sense, we gather knowledge so that we can our actions can be informed and they can produce a better result. Right? So we want to be perfectly happy, we, and for that we need perfect knowledge, and for that we need a perfect method. We cannot have an imperfect method. If reasoning unto itself could make people perfectly happy, we'd have a lot of happy people over the centuries. People have exercised their intellect in Western civilization at a certain point where reason became unhinged from revelation. Used to be that reason was always hinged to revelation. For example, uh, the, the biblical Western revelation, or in the East, Eastern revelation, the Bhagavad, the Gita, and so forth. The intellect was tied to that. When we have intellect hinged or connected with uh, Scripture, 
with revelation, then we have something called theology, so to speak. Or Shastra Yukti is our term. Reasoning about the nature and the implications of the scriptural argument, which are huge. It's going to be very um, consuming. There's a, there's a misunderstanding in the modern world, uh, often voiced, that um, it goes like this, that science is a discipline that's always open to new insights and change. Hmm? Whereas religion is stuck, it has, it has its dogma, that's it, it, it never changes. So it's not an open-minded uh, discipline. And science is. This is just a total misunderstanding of the nature of, uh, of religion. Yes, there are rigid people who just uh, imbibe and regurgitate some religious dogma without understanding its implications and so forth. But those who actually use their reasoning hmm, to understand the depths of the implication of the sacred texts and so forth are always coming up with newer and newer insights hmm, as to the nature of ultimate reality. A devotee told me some time ago that, that another devotee said he gave up bhakti because he realized that Krishna consciousness was man-made. I said, well, who do you think made it? Every religion is man-made. Men and women try to talk about that which is, which is, uh, which is beyond words, hmm? beyond thought. Hmm? They try to talk about it, and as best they can, they do. That's what religion is, right? Some inspiration comes from the other side, and we try to we try to talk about it. We try to put it into words. And some do it better than others. And some have more of experience of it than others, and therefore they, they do a better job of reasoning about it and talking about it and so forth. Hmm? <laughs> so, um, so, anyway, there's... Uh, there's uh, What's the point? So there's a place for this, uh, using the reasoning in in, uh, in Krishna service, um, and uh, at a certain point in Western civilization, reason became unhinged from a less than dynamic, I think, understanding of the Western uh, revelation. The Catholic Church, for example was governing Europe, but its understanding of its own text, to a large extent, um, had diminished into kind of a indulgences, and getting people to pay for indulgences to, to keep the priests fat and so forth and, and so on. And so it wasn't really nourishing anybody in a, in a dynamic spiritual sense. And um, um, new insights about the nature of the world came to surface that weren't that that uh, simplistic fundamentalist kind of faith didn't have an answer to. So reason became unhinged from scripture. And then my point is that reason was just free to just like just like you know just turn itself over and over again. It's kind of a perpetual uh, masturbation of, of, the, of the intellect. It's very, you know, you can think about things from, you know, so many different angles, right? The longer you think about it, if the, the, the more different angles you can come up with. The Mahaprabhu was 
was named Nimai Pandit for his ability to take a subject, whatever it may be, and analyze it from every different angle and make his point, convince everyone, and then turn around and show it the other way and so forth. He, um, this, the sutras say tarko apatishtanat, that by, by, by reasoning unto itself, you can never get any conclusive truth. There's always going to be another reasoning and so forth. Hmm? And someone may say, well, what about that reasoning? We say, oh, yeah, yeah, we say the same thing. Either there's a reasoning to defeat that idea as well. And just goes on and on and on. So the idea is, I think it's a very good idea from Revelation, is that reasoning is not a uh, sufficient of an instrument hmm, to sh- uh, shed light on uh, on the, uh, the nature of ultimate reality unto itself. It doesn't mean it's not to be to be used. But um, again, if it was sufficient to give rise to perfect knowledge by which our actions would be perfectly informed and we would be perfectly happy, there would be a lot of happy people because people have been thinking in Western civilization for a long time. Hmm? They've thought themselves away, even. Hmm? You have your existentialist philosophers who you know, wondered if they existed, and then you have it. Now you have philosophy, analytic philosophy, t- tied with uh, you know scientific data and so forth. And many leading thinkers in this school have also also thought themselves away. There's no self. They tell us that there's no self. Self is self is an illusion. There's only a brain. There's an illusion of a self, and that illusory self is looking for meaning, and he's come to the realization that there is no meaning, and that's what we should believe. <laughs> That's not very reasonable, in my opinion. So this gets very like you just reason yourself out to death, so to speak. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm convinced that reasoning unto itself does not uh, have the power to afford us perfect knowledge. It's it's often placed on the altar in uh, in modern society. But I mean, you see the see the see the foolishness of this reasoning. We we, we reason, for example, uh, that as as many do today, materialistic philosophers, that we are nothing more than a brain and physical forces. There is nothing even a mind, or to speak of consciousness or a self. So we're just automatons, just dust in the wind. Uh, so they reason about this and they make a strong argument for it based on an interpretation of scientific data and so forth, which could be obviously interpreted in another way as well. And they very much you know, con- want to present this reasoning as if it's conclusive, but the very argument that they're making does not afford reasoning the power to um, shed light on truth. I mean, it has, it, there's no right reasoning or wrong reasoning in that worldview. There's no right or wrong action because it's just dust blowing in the wind, right? So there's no right or wrong thought either. So I mean, <laughs> this is the, this kind of ins- kind of an insanity, if you will, and it's the leading philosophical you know perspective <laughs> in the world today. Hmm? So what we want to do is we want to take our intellect and then connect it with Eastern. Revelation, Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad, and reason about its implications and so forth. This is called Shastra Yukti as opposed to Kabal Yukti, Yukti unto itself, Yukti in relation to Revelation. So as I said, we need a perfect 
way of knowing to arrive at perfect knowledge. And the perfect way of knowing is, is that we are part of something that's not dead. Hmm? It's alive. And we're alive. Hmm? Right? And we want to know it. That's a symptom that we're alive. <laughs> we want to know it. Hmm? And it's bigger than us. And so the scriptural argument is basically that, that if it wants to show itself, it can. If it doesn't want to be known, it won't be known. Hmm? So on its terms, so the revelation of sacred texts, these are um, examples of, of um, uh, ultimate truth making itself known to the humans. Now it's a difficult task to do in one sense because they say, well, why doesn't God just show up and tell us everything? Something like that. But you have to understand the difference between the two realms, the spiritual and the material. Just to give an example, in, from our perspective, that is the land of love. The language is love there. Hmm? Here we say, oh, you, my heart melts. It's just a metaphor, right? Their hearts actually melt. So what are the hearts made out of? What, you know, it's a land of, if you study Rupa's tome on, on, on Bhakti Rasa, you see it's a land of ecstasy. I mean, Mahaprabhu was the most complete and full expression of that embodiment of the ecstasy that the Braj Lila it consists of. Every movement, hmm, ecstasy, and he, have, he actually melted. Hmm? So, and so many reports, right? So many apostles wrote the testimony. He melted. He did this. He did that. We, we have this, this, this a good uh, from reliable people, so to speak. So, point being that it's hard to you know say in that world there's the language of love. I mean, even that we don't know what it means. What's the language? We're just trying to say. There's a there's a communication. There's a there's a there's a um, um, uh, interaction with the with the absolute. It's beyond thought. It's beyond word. The best we could describe it as as love. So if the language there is love, well, that's not the language here. At best, the language is 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 reason. Hmm? And many people don't speak that, right? They don't even speak reason. Hmm? Uh, so, what do you do? How how then you're going to take that from that side and translate it? You're going to tra- try to translate love into reason. Well, there's something lost in the translation. Hmm? There's something lost in the translation. So it's a good effort, but again, reason cannot contain love. There were said in common English. Love knows no reason. Hmm? Love transcends reason. Yes, I know, but... Hmm. Yes, that may be right, but... Hmm. <laughs> that can be bad, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, from the way we're talking about it in the spiritual sense, of course, it, it's good. Reason is a, is a very, as I often say, a proceed-with-caution type of um, movement within the world. So we're always checking with our reason. Do I accept that or not? But to be home, hmm? you can let your mind relax. 
when your mother puts food on your table, you don't ask what's in it. Hmm? Just, okay, I'm home now. I don't have to think. Hmm? Here is, is it, it's love. I know that it's love. Uh, everything is, she has, he has good attentions. Everything, everything is good. So Golok is like the homeland. We don't need to think there. Hmm? Therefore, Gyan Shunya Bhakti. Bhakti unencumbered by this need to reason about it and so forth. That is Vrindavan. Hmm? <laughs> uh, recently, the president of the country that I was born in, um, if you can call him that, um, <laughs> many of us don't like to, he decided on the 4th of July, 4th of July is the day that the United States of America became, declared its independence from, from Britain. Hmm? Right? So it's the Independence Day, so-called. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I grew up, every, every 4th of July there was the picnics and celebrations and, and what, whatnot, Patriotic Day and so forth. I was never much of a patriot myself, uh, but um, um, appreciate the freedoms and, and, and whatnot of the country. Um, but uh, this was like the first day in my whole life of the Fourth of July that they had that he, the president called for a parade of tanks and missiles. <laughs> I mean, when we were younger, and there was a and Russia was occupying Poland, right, the Soviet Union and so forth. That's the kind of things they would do. They'd have parades with missiles and tanks and so forth. It's like, whoa, you know, uh, we live in a powerful country. Great, you know. Uh, it, it didn't really foster, like, happiness and, and, uh, and comfort and so on and so forth. Um, so it's actually a show of weakness. Hmm? If you have to show your guns, uh, you know, then, it, then, it, then it's, it's, it's a weakness. If you actually have them, you don't have to show them. But when you need them, they're there, right? So Goloka Vrindavan is like that. It has knowledge that's, that's super extraordinary. It has Aishvarya, majesty. Just like in the Brahma Vimohan Leela, Krishna showed Aishvarya that, that blew Brahma's four minds. His four heads. I mean, he couldn't fathom what he was seeing. Hmm? Krishna showed him, and then he collapsed it all, and so forth. So there's no greater display of Aishvarya or majesty. It really described anywhere in the scripture than in the Brahma Vimohan Lila, and it occurred in Vrindavan. So underneath the, the simplicity and the beauty of the love of Vrindavan, all the knowledge is there, in just the grains of sand. Mm, so much knowledge, right? Mm. But it's not required. In fact, if it was all to show up, it gets in the way. And so the knowledge of Krishna's power and Godhood is kept in its place so that there can be this intimacy of exchange between him and his devotees. Mm. So it used to be in the United States that you would never see a missile or a machine gun or anything like that. Uh, army, troops, you never see them. They're off somewhere hidden in the mountain caves or in some towns and you can't, can't go there and so forth. So you never see them. But if the country is attacked, then they come out like anything, right? They're, then they're all over the place. Hmm? So Vrindavan is something like that. The knowledge is all hidden, hidden. But when simple village girls and simple 
Vaishyas, boys, <laughs> when they come from there to here, we call them Gosamis. <laughs> and they have all kinds of knowledge from the scriptures, right? Rupa Gosami, Sanatana Gosami. Um, you know, this Gopa, um, the Prabhupada's family followed Subahu, what is his name? Udharam um, Dattatakura. Hmm. It's, it's said that he was such a qualified um, uh, person to write, but he had no time. Hmm? No time. It's said about Gopal Bhatta Goswami also. We don't have any book from him. He never had any time to write. He was always cooking and singing verses of the Bhagavatam for the pleasure of other devotees in the Radhavavinda temple. He was the cook in the Radhavavinda temple. Hmm? Raghunath Bhatta, yeah, I think so, yeah, Raghunath Bhatta Goswami, hmm. yeah, so Udharana, he never had time, hmm. he was just doing Sankirtan everywhere, right? and, and, and feeding people, he had a, he, had a, he started a, a kitchen that was like 10 hectares, that's how big the kitchen was, for feeding people, prasadam in Bengal, and bringing them for kirtan. Busy, busy, busy. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, so w- point being, when, when these gopas and gopis, they come from there to here, we see, well, actually, Rupa Manjari comes here as Rupa, as she's a, he's a handmaiden of Radha, she's a handmaiden of Radha. When she comes here, she appears in, appears in Krishna's, in Chaitanya's Leela, or Leela, as Rupa Goswami. Hmm? What does Krishna Das Kaviraswa say? Goswami say about Rupa Goswami? He says, just like Krishna blessed Brahma at the dawn of creation with all the Vedic knowledge, hmm? similarly Chaitanya Mahaprabhu blessed Rupa Goswami with, with all the Vedic knowledge, knowledge of all the intricacies of Bhakti Rasa and so forth, and giving it to the world. So, so, so that when you're in a place where the knowledge and the power is needed, then it's, it's manifest. But you want to be in a place where it's not required, right? Hmm? Krishna is all-powerful, no doubt. But he's, he's in a, he appears fully in a place where it appears that others are more powerful than him. His mother tied him up. Hmm? His friends can defeat him in, in wrestling and so forth. So that's why if you really are a good student of the Bhagavatam, you will understand that the Bhagavatam is not about the power of Krishna. What do you mean? It's Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna's the fountainhead of all forms of divinity. He's the he's the Adi Purusha. He's the, the fountainhead of all. He's the most powerful. No, you have not understood the Bhagavatam at all. It's not about how powerful Krishna is. In fact, the Bhagavatam is about how weak Krishna is. That's what it's about. It's all about how weak Krishna is. Therefore, it is about the love of Krishna, the love of Sakya Rasa, the love of Madhurya Rasa, that makes him powerless, <coughs> makes him appear powerless right, in Braj, and so charming, so endearing to us. Hmm. Weak as we are. Love is a weakness and the greatest strength at the same time. 
right? It's both. That's meta bed. So, so yes, yeah, so go there. Then, um, then, scriptures revelation is 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 it is it is, is from that side communicating to us. But why doesn't God just come and talk to us? And, and, well, it's not so easy to translate love into 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 reason, and at the same time, in an effort to put reason in its place and so forth. So, the language of the scriptures comes out. What does it mean? There's a story here. There's a there's some metaphor here. There's some right, and that also gives us the chance to use our intellect spiritually and capture it. So if your intellect can be captured entirely, then what? Then for for bhakti, then your bhakti, your practice will be nishta. You understand? If your intellect is captured, then it will be initiated because then the mind and the senses cannot move you from the practice. It cannot move you from the practice. Now you have you have the very instrument that's meant for harnessing the mind and the senses, the intellect, and making you a civilized being rather than an animal, has been fortified by by scripture, by revelation. It's been fortified, strengthened. Hmm? And thus, it can then it can uh, not only be civilized, hmm? but now it, it, it can it can master the mind and, and the senses in such a way as to not as to go beyond just being a reasonable person to being a lover. Hmm? Love. I mean, this is being well wise love, well reasoned love. Hmm? So. Scripture is there to help us hmm? strengthen our intellect. That we can, then our practice can be steady. Then we, then we can get with consistent practice, not being deviated by the mind and the senses. Then feeling for that will come, feeling, hmm? taste, and then you can just pray to Krishna. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> Next life, you just pray to Krishna. So, does that help? Yeah. Some, some thoughts. What else? Yes. I have a question about Navahas. About what? Navahas. Me too. There's something not very clear to me. That's an Abbas. Yeah. Not clear. How the chanting Navahas is very common or very rare? Because, for example, in Poland, everyone is chanting around because this is normal world. And uh, Namahas can afford the liberation. And Shashita uh, Maharaj, he wrote that actually we cannot chant holy name. We can only produce uh, some material sounds. And holy name can descend, descend? descend and manifest. This material sound. So, so what about uh, Namabhas? Is it mean that to because uh, to because also material sound cannot produce liberation? So, is it mean that someone must uh, chant Namabhas with some bhakti, but then we can call this shat Namabhas? But what about uh, normal Namabhas? 
it can produce the liberation or not? I think that um, the... Uh, Aha. Pytanie odnosi się do interwencji na Mabhasy. Ja się zastanawiam, jak często, czy to jest coś rzadkiego, czy to jest coś częstego, dlatego że na przykład w polskim języku słowo Rama jest popularne i każdy je powtarza, ale nikt nie osiąga wyzwolenie, a na Mabhasa jest w stanie osiągnąć wyzwolenie. I Shashita Maharaj, on powiedział, że tak naprawdę my nie jesteśmy w stanie wyrazić, czy no, dodawać się tego imienia. To, co my możemy ze swojej strony zrobić, my możemy wytworzyć materialny dźwięk, materialne sylaby i święte imię może zamanifestować się poprzez te sylaby. Ale nam pasa z tego zacji, że może być wyzwolenie, a z kolei ten materialny dźwięk, który my tworzymy, nie, nie daje wyzwolenia. Więc moje pytanie jest takie, czy świat nam, czy e, czy nama, no, czy nama pasa, e, może, może dać wyzwolenie, ale czy nama pasa musi być połączona z bhakti, a wtedy jest to świadka na pasa, co odnośnie zwykłej nama pasa? Yeah, I think that the way that uh, nama bas is presented in the Bhagavatam um, uh, per the uh, commentaries of our acharyas, um, which uh, appears in the sixth canto in the story of Ajamil, for example, there are four types of namabhas are, are mentioned. Uh, there are the four types of namabhas mentioned, sanketya parihasya stoba helena, sanketya parihas stoba and helena. Um, they all uh, imply cultural acquaintance with the name. Hmm? Um, for Hindus, it would, it would seem. Um, for example, Ajamil was a Brahmin, he named his son Narayan, so he has some acquaintance with what it means and so forth, but um, in the end, uh, distracted as he was for many years from his spiritual practice, he chanted the name Narayan, calling his son, not mentally making the connection between his, his son's name and in, in the Godhead, but he got the effect as if he had made that connection and was chanting conscientiously. He got, uh, you know, freed from um, uh, what would have been his um, the result of his misdeeds and the opportunity to uh, further pursue a pious and even a spiritual life and attain liberation. When you get to uh, Chaitanya Bhakti and Chaitanya Charitamrita, it kind of it starts to extend the idea a little bit of Namabhas, where the Muslim chants Haram, which means, oh, horrible, I think, I guess, in, I don't know, Parsi or something, what language, I don't know what, the, what they meant by that exactly, but, um, and he was being what, a fellow was being bored by a, by a pig, by a, a wild boar, and the China Taram, and so I guess the idea, the thought was that he became came liberated. And it, and Krishnadas is extending this idea that even you chant the syllables disconnected and so forth. So I I think that um, overall um, the, the scriptures are not recommending something like chant Namabhas. They're teaching Shudanam, which means they're teaching what is the pure name? And the pure name is non-different from Krishna. And with that conceptual understanding, orientation, 
we should chant. Hmm? Um, and and the virtues of that will be extraordinary. What will they be? You will attain more than liberation. You will attain prem. By Shudanam. It means by the culture of Shudanam within the school of Shuddha Bhakti or Uttam Bhakti as a sadhaka within, with this understanding and with this idea in mind hmm, in due course you will attain that frame. It doesn't mean that now you're chanting something else and some other day it will be pure and as soon as that, that day it happens suddenly you'll have frame. But just as there is a there is a sadhana of uttam bhakti, there is a bhava of uttam bhakti, there is a prema of uttam bhakti. So the angas of bhakti that are employed both in sadhana bhakti, they are also expressed in bhava bhakti, they are also expressed in prema bhakti. Hmm? They are part of the school of Surda bhakti. So when we're doing shuddha nam, and we're not chanting nam and making offenses to the name because we learn the offenses. So we're, we're diligently trying to avoid them. And we're not chanting Nama Bas, because we're not doing it for a joke or, or Parihasyam or uh, signing it as the name of our son and only, or we can do that too, but that's not what we're doing as a culture. Hmm? Uh, we're doing Shuddhanam hmm? in the school of Shuddha Bhakti with this ideal in mind. We're not pure, but we're in a, we've identified with this particular school. We're not in a mixed school of bhakti and so forth. Hmm? We want to chant um, in the company of devotees who have this idea in mind, not to chant with people who have some other idea in mind hmm? um, for liberation. So, for example, they're chanting for mukti. We're not chanting for to enter for Brahma Saruja. So we don't really want to enter the kirtan of the, the Maya bodies. Hmm? We want to enter the kirtan of Shuddha Bhaktas. And we don't. We want to enter the kirtan of Shuddha Bhaktas of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Okay. So, the virtues of that are that in due course, when the name so sees fit, after cleansing the heart, what do you think? The impure name will cleanse the heart, or the only a shadow of? Well, yeah, you know, partially. That's another way of talking about Shraddhanama Bas and saying, you know, what's saying? The name will first cleanse the heart, show that side of itself. And then proportionately, as the, as the heart is cleansed, we'll decorate the heart hmm? with, with, with bhav and prem and so forth. So, so what the scriptures are emphasizing overall when they speak about namabhas, that means, let's say, bhagavatam, in the story of Ajamiya, where it comes up, is that it's possible just by chanting the name in this way, outside of the school of Uttam Bhakti, hmm? it's possible that you could get liberation. It has that power. Therefore, what to speak of the result you will get by chanting it conscientiously. This is the this is the logic of it. That's what it's saying. It's not advocating that, well, you know, anybody that chants, you know, we have in the US we have the Ramada Inn. It's a hotel. The, the Ramada, yeah. So everybody goes to the Ramada Inn and they get liberated, you know, because they're saying Rama. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Spanish, 
the branch of a tree is a Rama. Hmm? So everybody, you know, the, the monkeys are living on the Ramas. You know, they're not getting liberated. <laughs> so, so the point is only that that it's possible, and there is an extraordinary example in the Bhagavatam itself. It's a very extraordinary example. The example of Ajamil is not your common example. It's singled out as, wow, this is like peculiar. How could it be? So it says there's a po- that the possibility exists that even in the Namabas you could get liberation. It's possible. Such is the power of Nam. Therefore, how much encouraged we should be to take up the culture of Nam Dharma and so forth. Because liberation is only a, a byproduct that just a shadow of it could give. Hmm? So the virtues of it are, and, and, and the, 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 the uh, fruits of it, prame, they make liberation look insignificant, right? This is one of the qualities of prame bhakti, that it makes liberation look insignificant, undesirable. It's an afterthought, uh, if you think about it at all. The gopas don't, gopis don't particularly think themselves liberated, and they're not thinking about liberation. They're just serving Krishna, right? So. So it doesn't mean, therefore, that every every time that everybody chants some, you know, Rama or whatever, right? Rama this or Rama that, uh, for example. Not too many Krishnas out there, but Rama is fairly common uh, in different languages. It means different things. That, that they're all now they're all getting liberated. That's not the teaching. But it's possible. But but name doesn't necessarily do it. But it did in this instance in the life of Jamil to make this point, because that whole part of the Bhagavatam, the sixth canto, is just coming out of the fifth canto, and it's an answer. Those chapters are an answer to the compassionate Raj Parikshit, who heard about the hellish planets, and the idea there is that there are consequences for actions. That's basically the idea. You can talk about it in whatever way you want with devils with horns and pitchforks or whatever, but the, the, the theological implications is there are consequences for actions, um, and all a, and bad actions have bad consequences, and they're pretty bad. And so Raj Parikshit, feeling compassion, said, "How can it? You know, how can having heard that concluding portion of the fifth canto, his question was, how can people be saved from this?" Hmm? And of course. Sugadev explains, not, it's not by karma, it's not by gyan, but kechid kevalaya bhaktiya, vasudeva parayanaha. And what does he say? Narayana, parayana, nakutaschana bibhati, svarga bhavarga narakeshu, apitulyarta darshanam, muktanam apisidhanam, narayanam parayanam. What is that verse? How's it go? Muktanam apisidhanam. There's another one, Nirayiva Anyway, it's the same they're, they're same same chapter, these verses. So the means that who's who's Narayan Prime, whose life is only Narayan. That is a very um, rare uh, soul. It's beyond beyond uh, beyond um, uh, mukti and uh, and 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 so Kechit Kevalaya Bhakti unalloyed bhakti this is like 
if you want to dissipate the fog, like in, 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 in near where I live in Northern California at Audaria, every day in San Francisco in the summer, pretty much this fog comes in. This covers the city. Outside of the city, it's nice. Inside the city, it's foggy and cold. So if you wanted to get rid of that fog, well, it can be dissipated by heat. You could start a fire, but you might burn down the city in the process. But if the sun just comes up, fog goes away naturally. Hmm? So when, 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 when Krishna Bhakti comes, it is descending. It's not this ascending way of dealing with the problem of the fog of material existence, like karma or, or jnana or yoga. These are ascending methods relying upon our limited uh, and counterfeit material resources for bringing about a spiritual solution to the problem. They don't have the purchasing power under themselves. Hmm? Uh, and could be counterproductive, could burn a city down. But when bhakti comes of its own accord, kechid kevalaya bhakta, vasudeva prana, aghamdun niraha eva vaskara. So this is, this is the answer that comes, right? Hmm? And then the story of Vajamil is told. So bhakti, uh, Sudha bhakti is advocated, and then a story about nam, the principal anga of bhakti for Kali Yuga. Hmm? As how to, so this is what you have to learn from the fifth canto. Hmm? It's all you have to learn from the fifth canto of the Bhagavad Well, there's a, some nice chapters other than the description of the cosmos, but, but uh, that whole complicated description, all you have to learn from that is that, that, is that devotees don't go to hell. Okay, <laughs> no problem. You don't go to hell, no problem. There may be hellish planets, but we aren't going there. Hmm? Because we're chanting the holy name, right? So, so uh, but... But that should not be our motivation. We should reason it out, look at the life of Abjamil. He didn't go to hell. He should have, but he didn't because he invoked the name of Narayan, even though he was only calling his son. Hmm? So, therefore, what is the virtues of bhakti, and within that, what are the virtues of Nam? Therefore, we should be inspired to take up Nam Dharma. Hmm? That's the idea. So, it's possible. How do you say Rama in Polish? What does it mean? It means yeah. afraid. What? Uh, two things. Frame of the window, frame of the picture or painting, and also it's a marker. Um, how do you say Marjorie? Marjorie. For spreading on bread. <laughs> Fake butter. Brahma. <laughs> Sounds but good. it means it contains uh, but Rama itself means a friend. So, yeah, it's possible, but you know, it's up to the name. The name is Krishna, so who wants to give liberation to somebody? We can. It's extraordinary. Again, you have to look at Ajamil as like, this is supposed to be a like mind-boggling example. And it is. Hmm? But that example is given, it's an extreme one, there's a, there's a whole context, he, he knew Narayan was God, he named his son, and so forth, so the possibility seems greater that it might happen in that situation than in asking for the butter. Please pass the Rama. <laughs> 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 
you asked for Rama and you got butter. <laughs> got ghee. Oh my gosh. And instead you entered the sacrifice of Nam Kirtan just by asking for Rama. What's your question? You mentioned one day uh, about this shopkeeper and giving this example like uh, laughing about mushroom, yes? Yes. Uh, so let's go, uh, let's talk about the situation that the guru has some disciples and disciples uh, give some, some isolation to guru or even do some seva. Uh, so the guru has some Beneficial, yeah, some benefits from this relation. So, uh, uh, can you compare, yeah, the situation also to, and he can also love the disciples because the disciples are doing something for him. But uh, could be the situation that the lot is not so pure. It's like is this the lot like uh, the example with shopkeeper that it's like situated in Varnashram, mm -hmm. yes. The devotee. Yeah. You mean you're saying? No. Uh, some devotee is doing something for God, yes? Giving nice donation, doing some service. So the Guru, of course, appreciates the devotees because he's doing something for him. But the love, the Guru to disciples, could be not so pure, yes? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. can we compare the situation to this shopkeeper address that is like love in Varnashram? Yeah, but there's a difference. You want to give your question in Polish? In Varnashram, there are many gods, right? And they're all motivated. In other words, they're they're not uh, they're not liberated beings, right? So people make some sacrifice for them, and then they're obliged to reciprocate, right? But within Varnashram, Vishnu is one of the gods, right? So it's not clear to the Varnashrami necessarily that what's Vishnu's position in relation to the other gods. So he's just one of the gods, right? So there's some ritual for worshiping Vishnu on this day, worship Vishnu. But you, and you have the same motivation with which that you're worshiping Indra or this one or that one, and you do some service for Vishnu. But you'll get a different result because Vishnu is Vishnu. Hmm? He's not motivated. That's why it's said 
Only bhakti can give bhakti. But that means piety, the moral good, that is the goal of Varnashram, in and of itself cannot qualify one for bhakti. It doesn't matter how 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 small g good you are, you don't get capital G good out of that. Hmm? Capital G good means to move from from Varnashram, like this is our, what Krishna is advocating to Arjun. Stop with the small g good. You're not the body. No matter how you try to be good in this world, you press down here, it goes up here. You press down here, it goes up there. So this is not a recipe for for ultimate good. Hmm? You make ultimate good for humans. Every human agrees. The whole animal kingdom may disagree. You know. So um, what's bad for you? Why isn't God good? He made us. Why didn't he? Why did he allow a tsunami to come and kill thousands of people on a certain island? Hmm? How could God be so bad? Ask the sharks. They thought it was pretty good that day. <laughs> it was pretty nice. So you understand. So <laughs> moving within the cage of moral correctness and so forth, which is we need to be be harnessed from animality, is not sufficient. You have to be able to come out of the cage. That's what real spiritual life is about. So um, you cannot get bhakti by be- just becoming very qualified from a moral point of view. Bhakti, only bhakti gives bhakti. However, Jiva Goswami says, okay, if you insist, then I give you this. It is possible that by Varnashram adherence, you can get eligibility for Vaidhi Bhakti because within Varnashram, Vishnu worship is also there. So, you did some worship of Vishnu, therefore you go. Hmm. You understand? Hmm. So, among all the gods, well, Vishnu is different. So, even you don't know it. Of course, he says, but not Rag Bhakti. You can't get that. Hmm. But really, he's saying the same thing. You can't get Bhakti just from Varnashram. Worship of Vishnu within the Varnashram is still worship of Vishnu. You say his name and so forth. So it's, it's, it's a form of bhakti. Hmm? So Vishnu is different, right? Now, your question is about the guru. What if I have, with material motivation, I give to the guru? Hmm? I have the same kind of motivation as someone in Varnashram. Hmm? Um, let's say I'm in Varnashram and I want to have um, a good husband. Mm-hmm. And so I do the yagya. But I don't know about Varnashram and I get attracted to Krishna consciousness. I get a guru and so I want the guru to give me a good husband. You know, maybe I'm thinking unconsciously or something that's mixed in there. That's what you're talking about, right? 
this kind of desire. So you do something for the guru and 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 uh, you have some material motivation. Hmm? That depends. If your guru is a Perlambasura, then yes, then it will be like Varnashram. Hmm? Yeah. But if your guru is 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 giving everything to Krishna, hmm? Perlamba is like means to cling on to. So the guru has to be careful not to be clung to by pratishta and and attention that's given to him, keeping it for himself. Hmm? That was he was this Perlamba was trying to bring down Balaram. Hmm? Bring down. So when you serve the guru, then certainly for a sannyasi, then certainly the prospect of pratishta. Hmm? You understand? Pratishta pride and and and, and it will self-importance will will develop. And if the guru starts to feed on that, hmm, then he or she cannot be very helpful to us. Then it would be like some kind of varnashram arrangement, something like that. because he's going to be motivated, he's going to be guru is going to be motivated, and but if he if he's like Balaram. Hmm, Balaram was not dragged down by Perlamba. Hmm? Balaram spoke to Krishna's gopis and delivered the message from Krishna hmm? without ever thinking of enjoying them for himself. Hmm? Hmm? So he's supposed to be transparent. So you say, he gives you the guru, and the guru likes it, and he likes you, and so forth. But you know, he he likes that you are making progress in bhakti, hmm? and he takes. He should he or she should have the power to take even your impure motives within the offering hmm, and purify them. Therefore, it's said the same attachment to materialistic persons, family, friends, community, country. When transferred to a sadhu, those same attachments that bring about bondage, when transferred to a sadhu, bring about liberation. Hmm? So, question is: Is Vishnu capable of sorting through the bad motives or the less than pure motives and taking only the good? Well, Srimati Putana, we said, right? Krishna was able to do that. So Guru should be able to do that. Should be able to take what's good in our offering. He's like a garbage bag. <laughs> so he takes every the bad things, keeps it in the garbage bag, and gives the good in the offering to Krishna. So we get the good, and then he can he can he can take and he can dump the garbage in. Next. You can bring your garbage here. Is there anything good in it? Yeah, okay, I'll keep this piece. You give this piece to Krishna, the rest we throw, we throw away. Something like that. So he's in the midst of all kind of garbage. But he's not cannot be affected by that. Because he's looking only for the good. Sorting that out. Give that to Krishna. Then you get that benefit. That's the difference. Does that help? Well, that's what I'm saying. If he's a Perlambasura, if he if he cannot if he cannot fight off Perlambasura, then he shouldn't be there. Hmm? 
Valaram was biting off Pralambhashur story and thinking about Krishna. He was thinking about Krishna when he did that. Hmm? That, oh, now I, uh, here I am, this fellow has taken me at a distance, run away, and now he's shown himself to be. Uh, only when he came out of his coward suit, then Ram was ready to slay him. As long as he was dressed like a coward, he looked at him in that way. Then he came out and then he, he slayed him and he, with the thought that now I'm at some distance from Krishna. Maybe there's some other guy over there that's going to attack Krishna. So I have to kill Balaram and get back to the banyan tree right away. I, I have to kill Pralamba and get back. This is his thinking. So Balaram always thinking for Krishna. Guru always thinking for Krishna. If he's not thinking for Krishna, then he or she is, can't do that job so well. Hmm? Right? So, yeah. It's not an easy job. Garbage man. If the pay is not very good, <laughs> but it's very difficult. <laughs> Problem. <laughs> and you need an education to be the garbage man of this kind. It's very. Yes. I'm still thinking about bhakti being something that descends from above. Yeah. Uh, what does that actually mean in, in, in practice? For example, does that. Would that mean that uh, a person who is not initiated cannot really engage in, in bhakti, that uh, such a person? Not necessarily, but obviously one, uh, let's take within the context of Gaudi Vaishnavism, let's say, for example. So one really can't chant Hare Krishna unless he's heard from devotees about Krishna. And it learned the, the chanting, so you have to have some contact with the other side. It, it's not just something that you find under a rock, right? Or you just figure out one day, and then you could say, "Well, some people figured it out thousands of years ago and made it up." Well, I'd like to meet those people. <laughs> they're they're pretty far out. Um, we we go with the idea that it's it's descended, right? This is revelation, unauthored, whatever uh, text and so forth. So you, you you have to come in touch with that descending current. To do Vishnu Bhakti, that's just kind of the basic idea. And uh, you may not be initiated, but you may be doing some, you know, semblance of Bhakti, and hearing and chanting, chanting Hare Krishna's Bhakti. So um, uh, you have to you hear the mantra from devotees, and that's the whole point. You, after a while, you realize I got this from devotees. It's not like just mine. It was given. And who are they? And what are they about? And, and, and who and that, and so we shouldn't chant and avoid the guru, hmm? and not realize I got it from the guru, whether knowingly or un, some the guru was in my block, and uh, you know, circulating the, the possibility, making the possibility. So the current of karma is the main current in this world, but the current of bhakti is always in the world also. There are always sadhakas, there are always madhyamadikaris in the world, hmm? and uh, and the current of bhakti is there. And um, somebody asked me just today, they said something like, well, you know, you know, maybe not everybody gets the current. I said, well, it's, it's the current of karma is there for everybody, and the current of bhakti is there. If you get it, you're lucky. <laughs> and um, I made, dedicated my life to making people lucky. I mean, I can't get everybody, but, <laughs> but that's what devotees uh, uh, who are driven by 
the lower end of bhakti, compassion, they do that, right? Mm -hmm. Compassion for others. So they're circulating it. So how can you get it without them? That way it's, it's descending. And then um, the point being is that this is the activity of the spiritual world itself. It's nirguna. It's what goes on there. And if what goes on there goes on here, it must have come from there to go on here. So it's descending. If it is the norm there, then that's where its origin is. If there is a realm beyond the material, where there's a god who has form, qualities, leelas, devotees, and so forth, and what we, everything that we find in sadhana there is there in the sadhya, right? So in, 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 in some form, right? So if there is such a world, then, then that's from where this comes. Because the sadhya and the sadhana, they're connected. What the sadhya is and the sadhana, that's immature, mango, unripe mango, mangra, make ripe mango. They're both mangoes. Hmm? That help? Yeah. Yes. I have a question about about uh, Aparada. We all know that Aparada can uproot and or destroy the bhakti seed, and there is uh, intentional and un unintentional Aparada. To what extent the un and unintentional Aparada can destroy your bhakti? I'm, I'm asking in context of myself because. I, I had a lot more taste for bhakti years ago and I'm wondering to what extent the unintentional aparada could, could destroy it. Yeah, I think, oh, you want to... Moje pytanie jest aparada, obrazę, ponieważ obraza potrafi zniszczyć nasioną bhakti First of all, when we first come in touch with the bhakti, it, it has a great power to, to arrest our senses and our mind because there's just so much to take in. Hmm? And we're changing our whole life and everything, and we're like fully like. So there's a potential to get absorbed. Hmm? There's such a powerful impact from the other side in the form of sadhusanga that it can arrest for the moment our material trajectory hmm? and change the course. You're going like this a hundred miles an hour and you meet bhakti and it just whoo, a, a sharp turn. Hmm? And it's noticeable. Hmm? So you, you have some taste. But after you go forward sometime along the right road, you know, the right direction, then there's actually a practice, right? And your conditioning hasn't gone away, it's been stopped, the course of your life has been changed, hmm? that's major, and now there's a road ahead to go. Hmm? That, that to actually could absorb the mind and the senses, and enter into samadhi, that takes some time. And sometimes it's spent, Krishna gives a little taste at first to attract us, and then, then the work at hand, right? So our conditioning doesn't go away immediately, but it could be like the brakes put on suddenly and 
then you have to then you have to learn how to proceed. So it's not necessarily that your initial taste that you might not experience now um, is lost because of aparad. Okay. Uh, so now you want to know what is the result of unintentional aparad. Hmm? I would say the biggest result of unintentional aparad is is the neurosis <laughs> that comes from thinking I made an offense hmm? <laughs> when you probably had no intention to and you didn't and now it's getting in your way and then you, you're spiraling down and so on and so forth. So intention is everything. In karma, intention is everything. Hmm? Um, without it, then how can there be consequences? You can say, well, if you go through a red light without knowing, you get it. You know, probably used to give analogies like that at times. And there's some truth to that. But the extent to which, if a Brahmin who knows better does this, there's going to be a different result than if somebody doesn't know better or doesn't have any such intention. Uh, so you may offend a superlative devotee with your physically or you may offend a neophyte devotee mentally. These are the two ends of the spectrum. If you offend a neophyte devotee mentally, well, it's not going to be much of a repercussion. Hmm? And you can do that, right? You can have, you can have a neophyte devotee offending another neophyte devotee <laughs> unintentionally. That's about as weak of a Aparad situation as, as you could possibly get. And then you could have an, a, a, an advanced devotee, even a bhava bhakta, seriously offending another devotee can lose their bhava. That's possible. It's mentioned in, in uh, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So there's a whole range, right? And there's mental offenses, there are physical offenses, there are verbal offenses that you could commit and so forth. But intention is really at the core of everything. Hmm? And um, sometimes, the, they, unfortunately, the emphasis to avoid um, Vaishnava Aparad, um, as it plays out in Western society, uh, creates a real neurotic species of uh, devotees. That it can, like, it makes me uncomfortable. Someone thinks I offended Guru Maharaj, you know. Like, like, you know. I wasn't even looking, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> or, you know, take it easy, you know, <laughs> relax. Um, so, uh, you know, sometimes examples of give, are given of unintentional offenses and extraordinary results. These are stories, just again, scripture may take a less license to, to talk in such a way as to emphasize, but. I don't know if the scriptures were taking into consideration fully the industrial society and the neurotic, neuroticism of Western Kali Yuga world. <laughs> so we need to adjust and think about that. And and, and, um, and uh, yeah, so there's, there's not much that uh, that unin unintentionally means you know with your mind unintentionally. So it's not had much much consequence if at all. Other than I say, as I say, the neurosis—that's the big problem. So we don't want to be uh, neurotic. 
or to speak of psychotic about it, but, uh, but um, in a healthy way, have a healthy concern to you know, respect uh, all devotees, right? And it's not so hard to do. If you create enough distance between them, you can respect them. So that's my formula. If it's too hard to be close to them without, oh, you know, thinking ill about them, keep a distance. Then you can, oh yeah, I know him. Yeah, he's a devotee. Good. Yeah. So that's that's sort of part of the art of sadhana. You have to art. It's a skill. It's an art. You have to become skillful in sadhana to be successful. You can't just go blindly. There are statements if you just chant blindly in the dark or while asleep, you know, you know, get good results. That's again just to say what to speak of if you pay attention. Right? You don't make your spiritual life in in your sleep, right? You're... All right, so we we'll stop there. Sri Sri Gaur Nitya Nandaki Jai, Gaur Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanandi.